Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in your neighbor's shoes, as our choir sang so beautifully. Put yourself in my place, in their place. Imagine what it is like to be in that situation. That could have been me, I might say, of someone who is suffering. I've gone through similar things. I know how it feels. That is called empathy, the feeling with another, which inspires our attempts to relieve that suffering, sometimes considered the source of compassion, or at least a necessary component. Well, maybe. Empathy certainly overlaps with compassion but it may be dangerous to rely upon it to inspire us to practice compassion. It may be that practicing compassion inspires empathy as much as inspiring empathy leads us to practice compassion. It has become something of a custom for politicians and public figures to name their personal connection to an issue to underline how important it is to them. Now, these examples are a little dated as they come from the Democratic debates way back in July of 2019. Remember back then when there were so many presidential candidates? I share these not because they are so unique, but because I happen to record them and because they are not so unique at all, but rather representative of a common strategy for showing a high level of concern for particular issues. So, on gun control, Cory Booker, I hope I'm the only one on this panel here that had seven people shot in their neighborhood just last week. Someone I knew was killed with an assault rifle at the top of my block last year. This is not about policy. This is personal. On congressional authorization for declaring war, Bill de Blasio. And look, this is very personal for me. I know the cost of war. My dad served in the Pacific in World War II in the U.S. Army, Battle of Okinawa had half his leg blown off, and he came home with scars, both physical and emotional, and he did not recover. He spiraled downward, and he ultimately took his own life. And that battle didn't kill him, but the war did. On student loans, Pete Buttigieg. College affordability is personal for us. Chasen and I have six-figure student debt. I believe in reducing student debt. And on health care, this one is very personal for me. I started out this year dealing with the terminal illness of my father. I make decisions for a living. Nothing could have prepared me for the kind of decisions our family faced. But the thing we had going for us was that we never had to make those decisions based on whether it was going to bankrupt our family because of Medicare. I want every family to have that same freedom to do what is medically right. 
and on health care from Joe Biden. Look, this is very personal to me. When my wife and daughter were killed in an automobile accident, my two boys were really very badly injured. I couldn't imagine what it would be like had I not had adequate health care available immediately. Then when my son came home from Iraq after a year and was diagnosed with terminal cancer, he was given months to live. I can't fathom what would have happened if, in fact, they said, by the way, the last six months of your life, you're on your own. We're cutting you off. You've used up your time. And on racism, Kamala Harris. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents said she couldn't play with us because we were black. It's personal. There was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. She was bused to school every day. That little girl was me. These individuals are each saying, I not only have sympathy for people who are suffering because of these various injustices, I have empathy. I suffer with them as I have personal connection to this. That is a powerful message. And it leaves me with only one question. What if you didn't? What if you didn't have that personal connection? If you are saying that you care especially deeply because of this connection, I can only assume that you would care less if it was something outside of your experience. I'm not just trying to be difficult, but in a society that holds many different realities for people of different races and economic circumstances and cultural backgrounds and physical abilities and health conditions and religions and social networks, how much can we count on shared experience as the prime motivator of compassion? What if I don't share your experience and whether from a lack of imagination or a lack of pertinent data cannot put myself in your shoes? Can I still practice compassion? I am grateful and cautiously hopeful for what appears to be something of an awakening for white people in the United States of America to the realities of black experience in this country. But should black people have had to wait until there was enough data, a sufficient number of horrible videos of police brutality and murder, enough anguished family members, a sufficient number of chilling accounts of witnesses and heart-wrenching interviews with family members and books and movies and poems and prayers and protests and cries for justice, enough to finally drive the point home that Though this is not a reality for you, white people, though you maybe cannot even imagine walking a block, let alone a mile in these shoes, this is no doubt a reality. It is the road we are on and have been on in this country where our lives are threatened by the people you see as protectors, which finally has inspired the empathy that has inspired introspection about this society and its racist white supremacist foundations, which has finally inspired compassionate action as allies proclaiming that yes, finally proclaiming yes, yes, Black Lives Matter.
I am grateful and cautiously hopeful for what appears to be something of an awakening for men in the United States of America to the realities of female experience in this country. But should women have had to wait until there was enough data, a sufficient number of horrible stories of sexual discrimination, harassment, assault, and rape, a sufficient number of women excavating painful stories of the distant past, a sufficient number of chilling accounts of the ramifications and ongoing impact of dismissal, disrespect, and depersonalization, and the fear that accompanies navigating a predatory world of distorted masculinity that views women as prey, as commodities, as things, books and movies and poems and prayers and protests and cries for justice, enough to finally drive the point home that though this is not a reality for you men, Though you maybe cannot even imagine walking a block, let alone a mile in these shoes, this is no doubt a reality. It is the road we are on and have been on in this country where our lives are threatened by the people you see as protectors, which finally has inspired the empathy. Lord, let it be so, has finally inspired the empathy that has inspired introspection about this society and its patriarchal foundations, which has finally inspired compassionate action as allies proclaiming that, yes, yes, finally, yes, women are people. I am grateful and cautiously hopeful for what appears to be something of an awakening for financially secure people in the United States of America to the realities of the experience of those in poverty. I am grateful and cautiously hopeful for what appears to be something of an awakening for straight and cisgender people in the United States of America to the realities of the experience of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, non-binary, and queer people. Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, the Poor People's Campaign. I am grateful for all these awakenings in process, but I worry when we see empathy, that ability to feel with, to imagine myself in that position, to make it personal, I worry that when we, in the dominant culture, see empathy as a necessary prerequisite of compassion, we contribute to justice being delayed as we wait for the experiences that will allow that personal connection. And it leads to the unsettling practice of sharing the most admirable qualities of individual victims of injustice and marginalization, undocumented immigrants, black victims of police murders, those trapped in poverty and homelessness. Now, what's wrong with that, you're saying? Why not share their admirable qualities? Listen, I do think it's important to actively highlight that these are individuals, not statistics, that our statistics are only symbolic of and always point to individual lives. Connecting with their stories increases our sympathy, enhances our empathy for their plight. Their qualities evoke admiration. I get that. So what's wrong? Only this. 
sometimes by highlighting the most admirable or exceptional qualities of these people, it appears that we are having to prove that they are worthy of justice. That what they have endured was wrong because they were really good people. And that is dangerous because that same process can be used against us and against the pursuit of justice and equity. It is why lawyers will sometimes focus on bad habits and troubling behavior that are irrelevant to the matter at hand, but they are attempting to interrupt our empathetic connection, making it less likely that we will identify with the individual, less likely that we will feel compassionate, less likely that we will bring the same passion for a just outcome. People deserve justice, not because we consider them good people, but because they are people. As unfortunate as it may be, it is possible to live in many separate and sometimes virtually non-overlapping realities within the same society. I can be tragically disconnected from the truth of your experience. It is why Brian Stevenson urges us to get proximate to suffering and understand the nuanced experiences of those who suffer from and experience inequality. He writes, if you are willing to get closer to people who are suffering, you will find the power to change the world. And yes, He is urging us to put ourselves in positions where empathy is increased and expanded. But the very act of getting proximate means we are first acting from compassion. We are willing to go outside of our own experience to learn something new. We are starting first from a recognition of inherent worth and dignity, trusting in an essential unity that binds us all, regardless of my ability to consistently feel it or to always find corresponding experience. Justice cannot always wait for my empathy to show up. It must rely on something broader, sturdier, less dependent upon my own earnest, yet necessarily limited perspective. It is this that allowed long-ago presidential candidate Eugene V. Debs to say, while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. This is what I hear George Harrison singing. When you've seen beyond yourself, the time will come when you see we're all one and life flows on within you and without you. Empathy is important. It is beautiful. It can provide the feeling of connection that inspires us to act with compassion but I cannot rely on it as my sole motivation for compassion. If I develop a practice of compassion, it will sustain me through those times when I'm just not feeling it. It will allow me to reach out to people even when my experience and even my imagination cannot quite put me in their shoes. 
It will sometimes lead me to places that inspire an empathy that I had not thought possible. I don't want to reach the end of my days thinking, as Mary Oliver put it so beautifully, what love might have done had we loved in time. The time is now. And as Dina Metzger reminds us, there is no time not to love.